You're listening to a sermon preached at Meridian Church. For more information about Meridian Church, visit meridianchurch.com. It is our hope that this sermon is used by the Holy Spirit to minister to you the grace and peace found in Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. And now, here's your sermon audio. Word to the Gospel of John. John chapter 10. John chapter 10, our focus will be on verses 1 through 21. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone here enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, He has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, These are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father, we come to You, sinners though we are, full of sheep wandering yet still, in boldness, knowing it is You who gave us to Your Son before the creation of the world. It's You who gave Your Son we come to you 
knowing that the Son gave His life. He's bought us, He's purchased us. And so we plead Your mercy and grace on us this morning that we would go by Jesus as the door, as the way, and find pasture as Your lambs this morning. Feed us. May we hear the voice of our Lord in the preached Word now. Feed us. Lead us into life and life abundant in Christ now. And we cry out, Father. We cry out for any here that they don't really know the Good Shepherd and they aren't known of Him. That they would enter by the door and they would be saved and have life. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Jesus not only gives life, He laid down His life. The reason that He can give life is because He laid down His life. Jesus gives life to the sheep, and He's able to give life to the sheep because He laid down His life and He took that life up again. These two truths, that Jesus gives life and Jesus laid down His life, are central to what Jesus teaches us here in this passage as He tells us, I am the door of the sheep. And I am the good shepherd. All that Jesus says here is introduced by and sustained within a figure of speech. Verse 6, this figure of speech Jesus used with them. So everything that Jesus says in this passage is introduced by and then not only introduced by, but it's sustained within this figure of speech. And this is a rare word. only found five times in the New Testament. Four of those instances are in John. It's a rare word, and some translate it, the King James does, as parable. Others, New King James' illustration here, figure of speech. So we have this figure of speech that dominates the whole passage. Why is it here? What link does it have to what has transpired? It'll be clear It's linked to what is going to transpire in the future. But why does it come here? And the first clue is seen in verses 19 through 21. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. So we have division, and then we have this this secondary opinion in verse 21. Can a demon... Open the eyes of the blind. So two links going back to chapter 9. Chapter 9, we see this division within the ranks of the Pharisees, the rulers. And we see the healing of the blind man. John 9, 16. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? Referring to the healing of the blind man. And then it gives this comment. And there was a division among them. So, all of that really 
only tells us that this figure of speech is related. It doesn't tell us how it's related. So all those links at the end of this passage tell us there's a link here. How is it related? What's the nature of the link? And I think it's assumed and it's understood by keen ears what the link is between what Jesus is saying and what's transpired by the very metaphor itself. The figure of speech tells you what the link is if you're listening with keen ears. All of the interactions with the blind man, both by Jesus and the leaders, all those interactions are picked up by this shepherd-sheep figure of speech. They're explained by it. And the root that links them all is all the shepherd-sheep imagery, most of it how it's used, in the Old Testament. And chief among all those is Ezekiel 34. So this image is used again and again in the Old Testament, and the primary reference is Ezekiel 34. Same way this image is used again and again in the Gospels, and the primary usage is in John 10. So in Ezekiel 34, Yahweh both condemns wicked shepherds and He promises a good shepherd. He warns and condemns, saying, All shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. You, you, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. You clothe yourselves with the wool. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And then he promises a good shepherd saying, I will rescue, I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey. And I will judge between sheep and sheep and I will set up over them One shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, Yahweh, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I am Yahweh, I have spoken. So in this figure of speech that's set before us, you have those who are unauthorized. They are thieves, they're robbers. They don't come into the sheepfold the proper way. Then you have the authorized Shepherd, the good shepherd, who comes to the gate, the gatekeeper opens to him. Now, the image that's here that might be foreign to our minds is this is a large shared sheepfold, likely built out of stone. Stone is the primary building material around Jerusalem in Judea. There aren't a lot of trees. So this is a stone sheepfold, and there likely would be briars on top to keep thieves and robbers from creeping in. And, uh, and so a number of shepherds would bring their flocks there at night. There would be one gate, and they would collectively pay for a gatekeeper to watch over their flocks at night. And sheep in this ancient culture and in the, in the east uh, to this day are led. They're not driven. They're led. And so the shepherd would come. They know his voice. They don't know the voice of a stranger They don't listen to it. The shepherd comes, they know his voice, and he knows them by name. They know his voice, 
He knows them by name. He calls them and he leads them out. Now think back to all the dealings with the blind man that you saw in chapter 9. Think of how the Jewish leaders deal with the blind man. Think of their harshness. Think of their concerns. And then think of Jesus and how he deals with the blind man. Think how the blind man responds to each of them. Think of how his words are full of grit towards the leaders and full of grace, humility towards Christ. So all this shepherd imagery comes on the tail of what's happened with the blind man and the leaders in Jesus explaining it all. Jesus uses this figure of speech with them, and naturally, as you would expect from their behavior, they don't understand it. Jesus used this figure of speech with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them, which means they not only fail to understand Jesus, they don't understand Ezekiel. They don't understand the Word of God times two. They don't understand the written Word. They don't understand the living Word. They don't hear Jesus' voice, which means they're not His sheep. Chapter 8, verse 47. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Notice the argument there is not, uh, you are not His sheep because you don't hear, you are not of God because you don't hear God. The argument is, you don't hear God because you're not of God. If you were of God, then you would hear. The reason you don't hear God is because you're not of God. Looking ahead at the Feast of Dedication that comes in verse 22, Jesus will pick up where He's left off and He'll tell them, you do not believe because you're not among My sheep. My sheep hear My voice and I know them and they follow Me. Now, I said earlier, this word for figure of speech is really rare, and I wonder if that's maybe caused you to think of something else that's really rare in John. This figure of speech, it's a rare word, but it's a rare thing in John. Have you noticed that John, outside of this parable-like illustration, doesn't include any parables. This is the only instance that's very parable-like. Some, some translations translate this unique word as parable. It's not the same word that the synoptic gospels use for parable and use frequently, but it functions in the same way that those parables do. Now, many think that Jesus spoke in parables because He was a good teacher and He was illustrative, and and so He made things clear by these parables. Well, Jesus was a good teacher, but that's not the reason at all why He used parables. Matthew 10, 13-16 is Jesus' longest explanation as to why He speaks in parables. The disciples came to Him and said, Why do you speak to them in parables? Notice... That question, why do you speak to them? There's a certain crowd that they notice when Jesus, when you interact with them, you speak in parables. Why is that? He answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, 
Hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and their ears... And with their ears they can barely hear, with their, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, Jesus says to them, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. So this is why when we find Jesus occasionally explaining his parables, he's explaining them to the disciples. He's speaking to them in parables, and he's giving the explanation to his disciples. It's been given to them, and it's an act of judgment on the leaders, on the Jews who do not understand, who are blind and cannot hear. This takes us back again to John 9, where Jesus says to the Pharisees, For judgment I came into, or he's, he's saying of them, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see. He says that to the blind man. And then of the Pharisees, and those who see may become blind. But unlike those instances in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where we see Jesus explaining the parables to his disciples, here Jesus explains this figure of speech to the leaders. But... He explains this figure of speech using figures of speech. He uses a figure of speech and the explanation Jesus gives for that figure of speech are two figures of speech. The next two I am statements. The third and the fourth of seven. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. Which I think reinforces the idea of this figure of speech is an act of judgment. And yet, there's a grace involved in it as well, as he is giving an explanation. First explanation, verses 7 through 10, I am the door of the sheep. That first explanation can prove the most confusing, even for the sheep. I am the door of of the sheep. The reason why it's confusing is because it, the metaphor has morphed. You're expecting Jesus to say he's the shepherd. That's what one through six set you up for in understanding this figure of speech. And now he says, I'm the door. And the door received no attention. You have a gatekeeper, but there's no focus on the door in one through six. So this first explanation is an expansion of the metaphor. The explanation is an expansion, and what you'll see is that the expansion is an invitation. He's giving this explanation. There's judgment involved in it. It's another figure of speech, but there is an invitation as well in it. As an expansion, the metaphor morphs. Instead of him being the shepherd, he's the door. We still have thieves and robbers, but now they're spoken of as coming before him. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, verse 8, but the sheep did not listen to him. So we still have thieves and robbers, and they came before him. And this brings you back to the idea of thinking, okay, Jesus is the shepherd. They came before him, meaning they came in the night. Jesus comes in the morning. The sheep are there because they haven't listened 
to the thieves and robbers who've tried to play off as shepherds coming before him. They don't listen to him. They hear the voice of their shepherd. Verse 9, they follow. But that's not the way it's presented to us. That's what you're thinking. The sheep didn't listen to the thief. They listened to the shepherd. But that's not what Jesus says. Verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and go in and out and find pasture. So the contrast you're expecting is listening to the shepherd versus listening to, not listening to the thieves and robbers, but listening to the shepherd. That's not the contrast that's given. The contrast is listening to the, not listening to the thieves and entering by the door. And the door swings both ways. You see that? They go in and they find a sheepfold. They go out and they find pasture. They go in and they find protection. They go out and they find provision. And we have something else that's really rare here. I am the door. If anyone enters by, by me, he will be saved. You go to the synoptic gospels and you'll find this language of salvation being saved again and again. It's used sparingly in John. John largely instead uses the language of life and eternal life. And you can see how they're parallel in the few inst- one of the few instances where John uses both of them. John 3, 16 through 17. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send a son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Eternal life, salvation, same ideas in John. That's what the door imagery is all about here. Life, salvation. Enter by the door and there's life. By the door, Jesus, there's both protection in the sheepfold, and there's provision in the pasture. That's the image. It's one singular concept that's being communicated. By the door, there is salvation. By the door, there is life. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But Christ has come that you might have life and have it abundantly. That's the idea of the door. That in the door, in Christ, there is life. Jesus, as the door, gives life to the sheep. And what you see here is Jesus is doing this. There's this figure of speech, and so it carries this idea of judgment, that they might remain blind, and yet there's also this invitation. Enter by the door. There is what we call the general call of the gospel in this explanation that Jesus is giving them. Enter by the door. This goes out to all. Enter by the door, and there's life. And it's as that general call goes out that what we speak as the effectual call goes forward powerfully, assuredly, certainly to the sheep so that they hear the voice of their shepherd and they follow him. And that's made clear by the next explanation. Explanation number two, I am the good shepherd, verses 11 through 18. So in the first explanation, Jesus, as the door, gives life to the sheep. The second explanation, Jesus, as the good shepherd, lays down his life for the sheep. 
Jesus is the great I am, is both the door who gives life to the sheep and the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Notice again how powerfully this is stressed. This is central. The laying down of life is central to what it means that Jesus is the good shepherd. So central to what it means Jesus is the door is giving life. Central to what it means is Jesus is the good shepherd is laying down his life. Listen to these verses again. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice so there will be one flock One shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received of my Father. You see the emphasis again and again here with the good shepherd. He lays down his life. Six truths are anchored in the good shepherd laying down his life. And the first one I've already said, it's the overarching one that is present in all the other reasons. And that is that the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He lays it down for the sheep. The atoning work of Christ is of infinite value and worth so that whosoever would believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, they will receive eternal life. They'll be saved. We can genuinely and sincerely offer Christ as an able and willing Savior to all men. One way this is spoken of is to say that the atoning work of Christ is sufficient for all, but effective for some. Sufficient for all, effective for some. And that by itself is a statement any Arminian will agree with. Efficient for some, sufficient for all. They'll agree with that unless they're universalists. And think everyone will be saved. The question is, why is it effective only for some? That's where two different answers are given. Is the answer because some men distinguish themselves from other men? Some sheep distinguish themselves from the goats? Or is it God distinguishes some from others. Is the answer why it's efficient only for some because some men are good or because God is good? Christ says He lays down His life 
for his sheep. Christ made a definite atonement. The suffering of Christ, the blood of Christ, are of such value that they could cleanse worlds upon worlds of sin. But there was an intent that he went to the cross with. He bought sheep. He ransomed people. He made propitiation for the people given to him by his father. Listen to how Matthew speaks of this both near the beginning and the end of his gospel. Matthew 1.21 She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, which means Yahweh saves. You shall call his name Jesus, for because he will save his people from their sins. Not, He will make it possible for anyone to be saved from their sins. That's true. It says something more precious than that though. He will save. He accomplishes it. It is done. He cries out, it is finished because He paid for their sins. He dealt with them decisively. This is why Jesus says in Matthew 2028, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Matthew 26, 28, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So this is the overarching emphasis of this metaphor, and it will become more and more plain, the truth of it, as we look at the other Five truths. So, first, Jesus lays down his life for his sheep. Second, in contrast to the good shepherd who lays down his life, we have the hirelings and the wolf, verses 12 through 13. So, whereas thieves steal, hirelings abandon, and wolves snatch and steal. Now, who are all these parties? Thieves, robbers, strangers even, we have them as well. Uh, Hirelings, and now a wolf. I think all of these are images for the Pharisees. Jesus is the door, Jesus is the good shepherd. Who are the thieves, who are the robbers, who are the strangers, who are the hirelings, who are the wolves? These are all their leaders. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin. Now, is there an application that can be made to a lot of others? Yeah. But in this text, I think the emphasis is on the the leaders. Their concern is for themselves, as Ezekiel condemned. A hireling is in it for his life. Jesus lays down his life. The good shepherd lays down his life. They flee for their lives. They're in it for the money, and if they're dead, there's no money. So they flee. Jesus, the good shepherd, lays down his life for the sheep. Third, the good shepherd knows the sheep for whom he lays down his life, and they know him. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd, I know my own, and my own know me. This is why in verse 3 you see he can call them out, and he calls them out, not sheep, and it's simply that they know the shepherd, they know his voice. He calls them out by name. Not only do they know the shepherd, the shepherd knows 
them. Each of them. He knows them by name. He calls them and they come. And notice just how intimate this covenant knowledge, this communion is between the shepherd and the sheep. Jesus uses an analogy to explain the nature of this knowledge. And it's one I wouldn't, I don't think any gospel minister worth his salt would ever be so daring as to use this analogy if Jesus didn't. We'd think it blasphemous. Jesus knows his sheep, and his sheep know him in what way? Verse 15, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. Now it's certain that there is an analogy here. We do not know Jesus the way the Father knows Jesus. God is infinite. Jesus is infinite. Only the infinite can comprehend the infinite. Our God is incomprehensible. He's transcendent. He's beyond us. But yet there's an analogy between the way that the Father knows the Son and the way the Son knows the Father and how the sheep know their shepherd and the shepherd knows them. Could there be any more daring language to say how intimate and how wondrous the communion is between the shepherd and the sheep than this. And there's dangers if we take this too far. But I want to say it's just as dangerous if you avoid this analogy altogether for those dangers and don't enjoy something of what Jesus is trying to tell you here. He knows you. How does He know you? He's so daring as to say that He knows you the way He knows His Father. And that you know Him the way He knows His Father and the way the Father knows Him. To unpack something of of what's behind this. It's not an identical instance, but I think it's really helpful in understanding something of what's being said here. Listen to this closing words from Jesus' priestly prayer in John 17. I do not ask for these only, Jesus says, but for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. So the union of the Trinity is used to unpack something of the union of His people and what they're meant to enjoy. And He he uses the language of I'm in you and you are in me. And we're indwelt by the Spirit of Christ, united by Christ. You begin to sense something of how it is that the union we enjoy is an analogy of the Trinity because the union we enjoy is by the Trinity. We are the people of God, purchased by God, indwelt by God, reconciled to God. Father, Son, and Spirit. He goes on. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that, we may, that they may become perfectly one. So that the world may know that you have sent me and love them even as you loved me. That's language again, never be so daring to say. 
But the explanation for how that can be is that the Father's love of us is His love of the Son. The Father doesn't love you outside of the Son. How is it that the Father can love you just as He loves the Son? Because His love towards you is His love for the Son. He goes on, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. O oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I've made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. The union and communion that we have with God is not one that we just step up to God independently. We have it as we are in union with Christ by the Spirit. So I think this helps you understand something of how is it that we are known. We're known by the Father in the Son. And we know the Father in the Son. How is it that we know the Son? Well, we know the Son in the Spirit. And the, the Son knows us as we are indwelt by the Spirit. We are known and we, are, we know we have communion as we have union with Christ. He laid down His life for His sheep. We're in union with Him. And He rose to give us that very resurrection life in union with Him by the Spirit. And thus, oh saints, don't miss this. Revel in this right now. Spirit, take it to their hearts. You are known by the Good Shepherd. And you know Him. You know His voice. If His Word is coming to you with any goodness, any grace right now, the Shepherd is speaking to you. You know Him. You know His voice. Don't take this for granted. Oh, blessed are your eyes if they see. Blessed are your ears if they hear. You know the shepherd. He's speaking. You hear his voice. And he knows you. He knows you. You know him. Fourth, the good shepherd, verse 16, has other sheep. They're not of this fold. They're not part of Israel. And Jesus says, he must Bring them. He must bring them. They are given to him by his father. He is going to lay down his life for them. His blood was shed to purchase them. He must bring them. And they will listen. There is this general call. Enter by the door and be saved. And there is this effectual call. They will hear. Jesus will bring them and they will hear. Jesus spoke of this and happening in that prayer we just I just read. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. John 17, 20. And how you're to understand that Phrase is really made clear by what Jesus says earlier in that same prayer. John 17, 9. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. That's what Jesus is saying when he says, I lay down my life for the sheep and I will, I must bring them. And they will Listen, 
through the preaching of Christ by the apostles, not only of this flock were sheep brought in, but among the Samaritans and then the Gentiles and from every tribe, people, and nation, those purchased by the Lamb for the Father. Saints, through the preaching of the apostolic Christ, you heard the voice of the Good Shepherd and you entered by the door. Dear lambs, you didn't enter by the door because you had better ears than all the other goats and then he made you a sheep. Jesus, the Good Shepherd, laid down His life for you. And He must bring you. And you will listen. He brought you because He bought you with His blood. And He will lose none that His Father gave Him. And the result of Jesus' bringing and their hearing is that there's one flock. Listen again to Jesus' prayer. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, so that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they, may, they also may be in us. There will be one flock and one shepherd, verse 16. Caiaphas, so you have these other sheep, they're not of this fold, but there will be one flock. Caiaphas, the high priest, unwittingly prophesied, we're told, saying in chapter 11, verses 49 through 50, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better that one man should die for the people. Not that the whole nation should perish. Now, he said that as a hireling, but he said it of the good shepherd. One man die for the people, then that they all should perish. And John goes on to explain, John eleven fifty one through 52. He did not say this of his own accord. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Jesus died so that there might be one flock, one shepherd, and that one flock is spoken of, the children of God scattered abroad. Listen to how Revelation speaks of this glory. The four living creatures, the 24 elders, take up this song. Worthy are you to take, up, take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed a people for God. This is the people given to Him. These are the children of God scattered abroad. You ransomed a people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And John 17 goes on to make it plain. 
that the good shepherd who gathers this flock is that very lamb who laid down his life to ransom those people. The reason why the shepherd can gather a flock is because he's the lamb who laid down his life for the flock. The reason that Jesus is a door to give life is because he is the good shepherd who laid down his life. And the reason what the good shepherd is doing in laying down his life is taking the place of his lambs. Fifth, the good shepherd lays down his life Because the good shepherd lays down his life, the father loves him. For this reason, the father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. And we mustn't reason from this that this is the source of the father's eternal love to the son. The father has always infinitely loved his son. He doesn't love his son just because the son lays down his life. But what's being communicated here is the father, as the Christ, the God-man, walking in obedience to the Father as we should, that obedience as it's constantly rendered up from, to the Father cannot but evoke the Father's love for the Son. The Father sees this and he, He's pleased and delighted with His Son. His Son is baptized. Behold my Son with whom I am well pleased. Jesus said in John 8, 29, I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. Marvel at this magnificent paradox that as Jesus goes to the cross and is bearing the wrath of the Father for our sins, never was the Father more pleased with His Son. Never has there been a more God-honoring obedience than that walk towards the cross and surrendering of himself to the will of God on the cross, drinking that cup down to its bitter dregs in obedience to his Father. How can the Father not be pleased by such obedience? Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. But note that the Father doesn't just love the Son because the Son lays down his life. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. The Father is delighted in the humiliation of His Son as it works towards the exaltation of His Son above all in the salvation of sinners. Philippians 2, 8-11, being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Dear flock, know this. Jesus didn't wrangle love from an unwilling father in some manipulative act in going to the cross in their stead. God so loved the world that He gave His Son, and the Son so loved that He gave His life. And the Father is pleased at the life-giving and life-taking-up act of the Son, as He does that in the stead of His sheep. 
The cross speaks to the love of God for the Son to be exalted above all in the salvation of sinners. The cross speaks to the love of the Son for the Father to walk in obedience that the Father might be glorified in those given to Him. And in that love of the Father for the Son and the Son for the Father, you see their love for us. Bringing us into their love for one another. Six, the son then lays down his life with authority. He takes it up again with authority. Verse 18, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received of my father. Again and again, we've seen the Jews try to arrest, try, stone, and kill Jesus. And again and again they fail. And the explanation most often given is that it was not yet his hour. It will be in obedience to the charge of His Father that Jesus goes to the cross. It will be the Son's authority and the Father's authority that are most displayed on that day when He goes to the cross. You remember Jesus tells Pilate, you would have no authority were it not given to you from above. It's this taking up of a life laid down also that explains how it is that a dead shepherd can give life to the sheep. He died their death and he rose with their resurrection life. He has eternal life, but he rose with resurrection life for those in whose place he came, for those who he was in union with. This is what he says in John 5, 25 through 26. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son to have life in Himself. Sinner, do not doubt that the door can give life. He laid His life down And he took it back up again. All who enter by the door will be saved. And again, in response to these words, there is a division, verses 19 through 21. We saw a division among the people due to his words, 740 through 43. We see a division among the leaders, first in 745 and 52, and again in 916 through 17. But it's evident that for the most part, This division is a division within not hearing. It's not a division of hearing and not hearing. It's a division of two kinds of ways of not hearing. There are two opinions given here, and both of them are negative. Don't be fooled. Two opinions here, both of them are negative. We have a negative negative opinion and a positive negative opinion. So the negative negative opinion, verse 20. Many, many note you, this is the majority report, and we've been seeing that in recent events. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane, why listen to him? So they just dismiss him. And then the minority report, it's the positive negative. These are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? That's better. 
but it's still only negative. They only say what Jesus is not. And Jesus has been telling them, I am. Positive thoughts about Jesus can be negative. This world is full of positive thoughts about Jesus that are damning. High thoughts about Jesus can be low thoughts about Jesus. They don't say, He's the door. And it's, it's coming to Jesus as the door in which there is salvation, in which one finds life. They don't say, He's the good shepherd. And they don't say that because they're not a sheep. They haven't heard His voice. They don't say, He is the Son of God. And the express reason why the signs that Jesus performed were performed, the reason why the Father gave Him those works, were to testify of who He was. John tells us, he's written of these signs, so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in His name. You're meant to see He's the Christ, He's the Son of God, and believing that you find life. It's not enough to say what He's not. You must confess who He is. He's the Christ. He's Lord. He is the door. He's the good shepherd. He is the Son of God. Jesus is the door of the sheep. As such, He gives life to the sheep. Jesus is the good shepherd. As such, He lays down His life for the sheep. And it's because Jesus is the good shepherd that he is the door. It's because the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep that then as a door he can give life to the sheep. This encounter ends with these blessed truths not taken to their proper conclusion. So sinner, examine your soul right now. Oh, how we long and we believe and we trust the Spirit of God is bringing this word to convict, to draw. Sinner, if you're hearing this general call, enter by the door. Close with this truth. Take it to its conclusion. Don't respond looking at this and saying, well, these aren't the words of one who has a demon. And I believe Jesus did this. These are not the acts of one who is oppressed by a demon. Own his words. He's the door. Enter by him. He is the good shepherd. He laid down his life and took it up again so that you might have life. And so say with Peter, you have the words of eternal life. And we've believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. If you hear his voice, enter by the door and you will receive life from the good shepherd who laid his life down and took it up again. Let's pray. Holy Father, we plead with you in Jesus' name.
knowing you will lose not one that you gave to your son. He's purchased them. He will bring every one of them. They will hear. It's our longing, Father, to see that we proclaim the gospel here today. We proclaim it to our neighbors and to our friends with hope that you're good and you save. You hear our cries. And so we come to you now and we plead on behalf of those we love that are here with us today. We plead that you have given them ears. They hear and they enter and they receive life. That the door, the good shepherd, the Christ, your son, might be exalted above all. In his name and for his name we ask this. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon audio from Meridian Church. Please feel free to share this resource with others. We only ask that you do not alter the content in any way. Again, you can find more resources at meridianchurch.com.